0: And welcome to We Are History, now officially the most popular podcast in the world, if you discount all the podcasts more popular than this one.
1: It's a great achievement, Angela, and I think it's a testament to (laughs) our rigorous adherence to the facts and the honesty of us as presenters. And that's not me talking, that was King Charles III talking to the Pope about the two of us Only the other day.
0: (laughs) Oh, we're so deluded. So, John, you've chosen this week's subject matter. And it's not an event we ever got taught about in school, even though it feels pretty significant and something we probably ought to know about. And even today in Black History Month, I don't think this massive story ever really makes the cut, does it? Yeah,
1: I'm going to stick my neck out about Black History Month, Angela, which I think is a great innovation and much needed But, but, the stuff that gets taught in Black History Month is, in a way, its own sort of neo-colonialism, because all my kids were ever taught was Black American history. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, the Selma March, they were taught the same bits of Black history over and over again, and all from the most powerful country in the world, the country which currently dominates the culture and economies of many other countries, in the way that European colonial powers did when all these racist problems took root. So all I'm saying is stop making everything, including Black History Month, about the USA. That's my two cents. Don't oh, two centimes. Those my two they were two euro cents, not dollar cents.
0: Of course they were, John. So what you're saying, John, if I if I've got this right, is you're against Black History Month. That's what you're saying. <laughs> What you're saying is, why isn't there a White History Month? <laughs> I'm not saying that, Angela.
1: I'm not a racist old boy, Angela. I'm just saying maybe kids in British schools doing Black History Month might also learn some history from Africa or what the British Empire did
0: in Jamaica or maybe the history of Haiti. I like your segue there, John, I see. Bringing it back to the subject in hand. Thank I would you. say, John, I, do, I know, you know you said about your kids learning. Your kids were at school, what? 10, 15 years ago now. I think things have changed a bit. No, think- it's
1: still have, still going on though. I was a chair of governors and it was always <laughs> pictures of Rosa Parks on the bus. And it's like, fine, we do need to learn that stuff. But they learned it over and over again. Yeah. And it's still going on. Anyway, it was just a while ago they were at school. That's all I'm saying. Thank you. Anyway, I'm very pleased with my segue. Because this <laughs> week we're doing a story from Haiti the slave rebellion that ended with independence for that colony and the abolition of slavery after the biggest slave rebellion since Kirk Douglas said to the Romans, I'm Spartacus.
0: No, I'm Spartacus. Sorry, (laughs) it's automatic, isn't it? You can't help yourself. Um, So set the (laughs) scene for us, John. Tell us about Haiti in the 18th century. I'm going back even further than the 18th century, Angela, (gasps) which I'm sure you'll approve of,
1: because the whole... Colonization of the Americas started in Haiti. If you remember the Christopher Columbus episode, Columbus left behind a colony on the island of Hispaniola, of which modern day Haiti is the western half. And when he came back, they were all dead, brutally murdered. And the Europeans decided that creating colonies in the New World was a terrible idea and maybe they should forget the whole thing.
0: Yeah, or perhaps not. (laughs) So eventually, Haiti becomes a French colony called Saint-Domingue. That's the west of the island, and the east was a Spanish possession. Yes. And even today, they're two separate countries, aren't they? Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Yeah. But before the slave uprising, Saint-Domingue had been a French possession for nearly 100 years, since 1697. And it was the most valuable colony in the French Empire.
1: Yeah, amazingly, the French had opted to give up Canada rather than their colony in the Caribbean. Such was the income from the sugar plantations on Saint-Domingue that they were desperate to keep it at the end of the Seven Years' War. How long was
0: the Seven Years' War, John? Not sure. Probably should have looked that up before (laughs) I came. I think it's about six years, eight months, something like that. Was it? (laughs) Something like that. So Haiti was a
1: huge money spinner for France, producing the very essential commodity that was sugar.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about this, didn't we, in our episode on Equiano and the Sons of Africa. All that suffering, all that exploitation, African families ripped apart, millions of slaves transported across the Atlantic. Terrible conditions. And it was all so Europeans could have sugar.
1: Yeah, not vital medicines or essential minerals, just a bit of sugar to have on their frosties. And frosties are already sweetened. You don't need to add
0: sugar. I think you might be getting a bit out of sync, John, because um, frosties weren't invented till just a tiny bit later.
1: Yeah, the point is, Angela, sugar was big bucks back then. Big francs, Mm. big quids, not big bucks. The two biggest sugar-producing colonies in the Caribbean were Jamaica, which was British, of course, and Saint-Domingue, which was French.
0: And sugar was a particularly labour-intensive crop to produce, wasn't it? It had to be processed on site. So there were slaves in the fields planting the cane, chopping the cane. Then there were slaves working extremely long hours in the processing plant, feeding in the cane to the crushers, where slaves could often lose an arm or be crushed to death. The mortality rates in Sandomang were incredibly high for slaves, which meant they kept importing more and more slaves from Africa. They were just replaceable, weren't they? Dispensable. Yeah, 50% of them died in the first year, often of yellow fever or malaria, diseases that thrived in the tropical climate of the island.
1: Yeah. And you, you didn't get many second or third generation slaves. And this will become significant in the revolution to come because most of the slaves in the colony had known a life in Africa before they were transported. They weren't born subjugated by Europeans. Some mm. of them have been soldiers first before they were sold into slavery.
0: Mm, I can see that being a potential for some trouble brewing. And of course, (laughs) being African born, many of the slaves still practiced the religion and customs of whatever part of West Africa they came from. Mostly Congo, Nigeria, Benin, which sort of morphed into the voodoo religion, which was kind of mixed up with the French Catholicism and elements of religions from West Africa.
1: Yes, so the voodoo religion was, of course, very sensitively examined in the 1970s James Bond film, Live and Let Die. I think most of us have a much more profound sense of the spirituality of that particular faith after we saw Roger Moore grimacing at a black high priest with a white skeleton painted on his body as all the locals danced and went crazy.
0: Luckily, I've never seen Live and Let Die, John. In fact, I've never seen any James Bond film.
1: Well, it's probably just as well in this case. The, the, the trouble is that everything I read about the voodoo religion does seem to reinforce this idea of huge gathering in woods at night with high priests conjuring up the spirits of the dead and everyone dancing and going crazy.
0: It's Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's, it's so alien to us that it's sort of portrayed yeah. as this weird thing but it's you know yeah it's it's sort of it's their religion our religion looks mad if you look at it from the outside you know (laughs) absolutely Um, the language of Haiti was a Creole which was a mix of French and West African languages although the language of the ruling class was of course French
1: yeah and the racial makeup of Saint-Domingue was about five percent white five percent free colored and I'm going to use the terminology of the book I read on this Uh, That's often the result of interracial relationships. And then most of the rest were black slaves, about 90% of the island, which meant that the whites were massively outnumbered. So they used brutality and terror to keep their power. The punishment for rebellion wasn't just death, but long drawn out, torturous death, you know, being crushed on a wheel or burnt at the stake in front of all the other slaves to instill fear into the rest of the workforce. Um, it should be said that the free-coloured often owned slaves themselves, but enjoyed fewer rights than the white slave owners. Some of the free-coloured were former slaves who'd bought their freedom using money they had saved from selling their own craft work. Or as the Conservatives at the time would have put it, by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and not just complaining about slavery all the time.
0: There were slaves, weren't there, whose job it was to oversee the other slaves or slaves yeah. who had privileges because they were domestic servants or looked after the children of the plantation owners. And the hope was that these overseers would jealously guard their privileges and would mete out punishments to the field slaves who were laboring long hours in the plantations. And th- this occurred to me, John, when I was reading your notes here, this really reminded me of the sort of thing that happened in concentration camps where you yes. turn victims of an awful regime against each other rather than against the perpetrators yes. and that yes. people that, that, you know, and that people that subjugate others do that. It's why it's the same reason why people in this country are more angry with people on benefits than they are with billionaires. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's turned the people against each other. Um, but in fact, when the time came, the privileged slaves would also turn against their so-called owners. Yes. And there were
1: also bands of runaway slaves who lived in the mountains, and they would sometimes raid the plantations for food. Um, So everyone could see it was possible to defy the authorities and survive outside the slave system.
0: Now, the colony was the richest in the Caribbean. In the hills above the sugar plantations, there were coffee farms. So if you like to Starbucks ice brown sugar, oat shake and espresso, this was the place for you, John.
1: <laughs> it was also a place for me because the only other significant crop was indigo, which is, of course, a clothing dye used to turn denim blue. Ah. So very important for men of yes, a certain age. Yes, quite. <laughs> um, the colony was probably the richest in the whole new world. They call it the pearl of the Antilles. But it could only trade with France, sell to France, buy from France, which was sort of annoying for everyone there. A system called l'exclusif. No idea what that means. <laughs> um, and their colonial society, obviously very influenced by France. The white kids were sent there to be educated, etc. And they aspired to French culture and all French values.
0: Which is all very well until France goes and has this thing called the French Revolution.
1: Yeah. This was quite a big deal, apparently, Angela. <laughs> We haven't done an episode on it because it's uh, too big a subject all on its own. But apparently uh, after 1789, France went through a massive change, uh, tumultuous change, and the different strata of saint society interpreted the opportunities in their own way.
0: It should be said that the French Revolution was a process of a few years but by 1791, when the Declaration of the Rights of Man was published and adopted, these ideas were eagerly received in France's colonies.
1: Yeah, the white population saw this new moral code as a chance to throw off the restrictive trade limits. Uh, and they were like, we could be like the 13 American colonies and be independent and get richer, buy and sell with the British, Spanish empires, etc.
0: Imagine seeing the phrase Declaration of the Rights of Man and thinking it was only about white people. Imagine the thought process. that <laughs> <laughs> Exactly.
1: Yeah. The free coloured thought it would improve their rights, which have been diminishing over the previous decades. Um, And should mixed race people get rights was debated in the new National Assembly in France. And in as much as they got to hear about it, the the ordinary working slaves thought, "Hmm, men are born and remain free and equal. That sounds like that might be an improvement on things right now. Mm. Um, So at the time of the revolution, there were about 465,000 slaves in this colony, 31,000 whites, and 28,000 free-coloured. According to the most exhaustive inventory of slave trading, about 685,000 slaves were transported to Saint-Domingue during the 18th century. Over 100,000 reported to have died during the Middle Passage, and then they were worked to death and replaced with new slaves.
0: Jesus. This is dark, this episode, I think it's fair to say. Yeah,
1: it is dark. It's a comedy, comedy podcast, guys.
0: Yeah, it's well, sometimes the comedies... A little less than other times. Goes out the window. So, yeah. yes, Although the days were long and the slaves were made to work excessive hours, France had made it compulsory that the slaves didn't work on Sundays. And this was intermittently enforced by the governor of Saint-Domingue. And it meant that the slaves had this time when they could congregate, get together, ostensibly worship... But these occasions became increasingly political and militant as slave leaders emerged and preached about spreading the French Revolution to France's richest colony.
1: Yes. So to begin with, the tension was mainly between the whites and the free coloured, with the slaves looking on from the sidelines. And actual fighting broke out between these two groups. And in May 1791 after the French National Assembly granted rights of citizenship to the free coloreds, then the whites in Saint-Domingue refused to comply with this decision. Um, But the outbreaks of violence helped create this atmosphere in which the brutally treated slaves started to plan revenge and rebellion. And in August 1791, one of those forest meetings from Live and Let Die was held. A plan had been hatching to attack the whites and burn down the plantations, and Dutty Buchman, a high priest of voodoo, who would be one of the early leaders of the rebellion, he led them all in the swearing of a secret oath of vengeance, and there was this tropical storm which had been brewing, and suddenly there was lightning and thunder, and they all took a divine call to action.
0: I feel like in the film of this scene, the director's going to find it really hard to resist all the cliches. They make the decision. There's a thunderbolt. There's lightning. There's yeah, storm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, Every night is party night, especially as on this occasion, uh, they sacrificed a pig and they drank the blood of the pig to show their commitment. Now, actually, I'm not going to pass comment on the different traditions of different faiths. The Church of England have coffee mornings where sometimes you can have a chocolate digestive with a vicar. Eighteenth-century Haitian voodoo religion involved draining the blood from the neck of a slaughtered pig and passing that round the gathering in the forest. I'm not saying one is better than the other. If the Church of England started sharing fresh pig blood, that would be fine too. It's whatever floats your boat, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, all religions look pretty mad from the outside when you look in on them. So who are we to pass any judgment yeah. on that? But of course, the Europeans who were at the time trying to insist that these African slaves were not savages who didn't need slavery to civilise them. Maybe this whole blood from a slaughtered pig image wasn't helping them in that time.
1: Yeah, it's like, yeah, we've had the PR agency in and the focus groups are saying religion great, but sacrifice the pig in the forest drinking its blood. Definitely not helping with the brand, guys. (laughs) So uh, these slaves spread across the colony. Setting fire to plantations and the rebellion spread, well, like wildfire. And although the plantation owners had long feared an uprising, the suddenness with which it happened and the enormous scale shocked everyone. A week after that call to action in the middle of August 1791, 1,800 plantations had been destroyed and a thousand slaveholders killed.
0: Well, John, maybe we'll have a little break there while we digest what we've heard.
1: Yeah, we'll be back right after this. Okay. Welcome back. We're talking about the Haiti Slave Rebellion of 1791. The colony had always been a particularly violent and brutal place before the revolution, and this was reflected in the nature of the revenge. Extreme violence was a characteristic of the revolt. Slave owners' families were murdered, the reports of their children's head were displayed on spikes at the head of rebel columns. I'm not sure this is actually true, but it was reported.
0: So within weeks, the number of slaves who had joined the revolution reaches 100,000. And they weren't all one disciplined army of slaves, but many different marauding bands of different and disparate groups, burning sugar plantations and coffee plantations. I mean, it must have been the best smelling revolution ever, John. (laughs)
1: That's a good point. In September, the surviving whites organised into militias and struck back, killing about 15,000 people. Dutty Bookman was killed. Huge numbers were killed on both sides. Frankly, Saint-Domingue Life Insurance Company was like, wow, we really chose the wrong place to set That's our a
0: business. Oh, a <laughs> oh, this is so horrible. Um, though they were demanding freedom from slavery, the rebels did not demand independence from France at this point. Is that right?
1: Yeah, most of the rebel leaders professed to be fighting for the King of France, Ooh. who they believed had issued a decree freeing the slaves which had been suppressed by the colonial governor. Remember that even though a revolution was continuing in France, the king at this point still had some authority. Uh, So meanwhile, the the rebels traded with the Spanish, whose uh, colony, Santo Domingo, made up the other half of the island, selling what they'd looted for the plantations in exchange for weapons.
0: But they also fashioned their own weapons, didn't they, such as clubs and spears from the forest where they were living. They didn't have the military equipment, but they had enormous numbers and basically nothing to lose in a fight to the death.
1: Yes. I mean, in reality, it was a race war. You know, you could tell who the enemy was by the colour of their skin, which is perhaps why it is not an episode of history that gets held up as an example to us all. You know, Martin Luther King marched alongside white liberals to preach peace and equality. But in Haiti, any liberal white people turning up in Port-au-Prince would have had their head chopped off and put on a spike. Maybe that's why it does not feature in Black History Month.
0: I can't believe you're against Black History Month, John. I'm not. You weren't listening. I mean, Nigel Farage, you expect him to be against it, but John O'Farrell, Jesus Christ. I suppose everyone moves to the right as they get older. That's what they say. I didn't say that. That's not what I said.
1: (laughs) Uh, By this point, many whites had sold all their belongings and left the colony with little hope of their old life returning. And this is brilliant. There's this newspaper advertisement of the time offering the sale of a coffee plantation, really seeking to make the best of a pretty unattractive proposition. All the buildings had been destroyed and the slaves were gone, fighting on one side or the other. But the slaves were actually included in the sale on the off chance that they might want to come back and work as slaves again.
0: (laughs) God, You know, the world's been turned upside down when you feel sorry for the estate agent.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, is it a working coffee plantation with an income? Yeah, well, it's currently undergoing some changes, but it has been a very profitable plantation in the past. Great potential as a restoration project. Right, right. And it comes with the workforce. Yeah, they're, they're listed with the cell. I mean, they're away at the moment on a team building exercise in the mountains. All these burned down buildings, very much part of that. Uh, but when they're ready to give up their newfound freedom and return to brutal slavery, yep, yeah, this is where they, they all slept before, in this charred ruin here. So by
0: 1792, rebels controlled a third of the colony.
1: Yeah, there were still some plantations functioning, some slaves working as normal, and there were black people employed to fight the rebels.
0: In fact, it seems like this whole episode is packed with people switching sides, betraying each other, misunderstanding what their enemies stood for. The Free Colours fought in the name of the king because they thought he still ruled France, and it was him who wanted greater rights for them. Then the slaves supported the British as enemies of the French, but the British actually wanted to restore slavery. It's confusing.
1: Yeah, it's bad. It's crazy. And finally, France's National Assembly decided it's time for action, and they sent 6,000 troops and a new governor who tried to stop the killing by abolishing slavery in the northern province. Sonthana was a product of the French Revolution, which, until Napoleon came on the scene, was ideologically against slavery.
0: But this move, of course, infuriated the local whites who decided they didn't want to be a French colony anymore. And some of them contacted Britain to inquire about British sovereignty over the colony. I mean, French people, John, saying they would rather be British. (laughs) Things got to be pretty bad before you can imagine them doing that.
1: Uh, No, no, I always thought that England is much better than France. Warm beer, overcooked meat, the processed cheese. I love old blighty, moi, je suis tellement anglais, moi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So then in 1793, Britain and France went to war, not because of Haiti, but over minor points of etiquette, like whether it's acceptable to guillotine your king. Silly little things like that.
1: Britain had thought it might be able to seize the colony... And William Pitt the Younger had been worried that the revolt might inspire similar uprisings in Jamaica and Barbados and other British colonies in the Caribbean. So thousands of British troops were sent to the island where they would die heroically of yellow fever. Initially, the rebels welcomed British soldiers as allies against the French whites, but everywhere the Brits controlled, they restored slavery, which made them hated by the vast majority of people.
0: And as we said, the Spanish had the eastern half of the island. And they were now at war with Revolutionary France as well. So it meant the rebels were better armed and supplied, although this wasn't a war of pitched battles and marching armies. The rebel former slaves lived in the mountains and they would attack the plantations or the authorities before disappearing again, whereas the European soldiers struggled to find them or to employ their big guns and their horses.
1: Yeah, not every plantation was abandoned or burned. Many slaves were still working in the south and west of the colony. But the slave drivers found those slaves less compliant and passive, and there was a fear that at any time they might turn around and murder their masters and run off to the mountains. So the plantation owners found themselves not using the whiff, but instead saying, you know, do as as I say, or I'll be really upset. You know, you really have to think about me. I don't feel safe in this space. So eventually, the governor, Sonthana, I think you said, made this very bold and courageous decision to abolish slavery.
0: Now, this is pretty radical and a shocking announcement in in the 18th century. And it sent shockwaves through the Caribbean and the Americas and imperialist Europe because so much money was tied up in the slave trade. The plantations, whether it's sugar, coffee, tobacco, huge fortunes have been made and economies relied on the free labour of the slaves that had been taken across the Atlantic.
1: But it was the only way he could see forward. He understood Mm. that the rebels were never going to go back to the plantations as slaves. Maybe they go back as free men and women, be paid for their work and the colony could start again. Then amazingly, his decision was ratified by the French National Assembly, who'd taken the text of the rights of man to heart. And so for a brief period, abolitionists around the world thought that slavery might be on the way out.
0: This whole thing about Britain taking pride in being the first European power to abolish slavery is pretty ridiculous. I mean, credit to Wilberforce and the abolitionists and the Whigs that pushed it through when the Tories were briefly out of power. But this idea that Britain as a country should be proud to be the first to abolish slavery doesn't make you heroic in that you were perpetrating slavery in the first place.
1: Exactly, yeah. I remember somebody on Twitter saying, it's like, I was actually the first serial killer to stop murdering loads of people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and apart from everything else, Britain wasn't the first to abolish slavery. Revolutionary France did it before Britain. It's just that... Napoleon came along and overturned it and reversed it. Exactly.
1: So there's this debate in the French National Assembly about whether the citizens of Saint-Domingue could be considered French. And the progressives all said, yes, they are free Frenchmen now. And then the conservatives were like, yeah, but not the ones who were born in Africa. We can't say they're French.
0: And then the left is like, come on, they didn't really get much choice in the matter. It's not like they came here because they bought a coastal timeshare apartment, is (laughs) it?
1: Yeah. So many of the Haitian leaders were killed in the ongoing bloody struggle, but one figure emerged above all the others to become the first significant black freedom fighter of the American colonies. Toussaint Louverture was a former slave, but rose to become a brilliant politician, a general and the leader of the revolution. In fact, the great Caribbean writer C.L.R. James compared him to Fidel Castro.
0: C.L.R. James, by the way, he wrote the first great history of this revolution, which was called The Black Jacobins. And it was published in 1938, when this story was a bit of a forgotten backwater of history.
1: Yeah. Eventually, Louverture became a free man and even owned slaves himself. One of them is thought to be Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who would eventually succeed Louverture and rule Haiti himself. So it shows you, Angela, if you can work your way up from slavery, if you make enough effort through hard work and enterprise.
0: Oh, dear. Louisville's tactics in fighting the British was to wait a couple of weeks and then watch them all die of horrible tropical diseases. Uh, And sure enough, this came to pass and disease was a constant impediment to European armies. What a shame. Because they weren't inured to yellow fever or malaria in the way that the locals were. So it got them.
1: Yeah, that's... That's not to say there were no battles between them. There was one occasion where the rebels attacked a British fort, found that their ladders were not tall enough, and so they had to stand on each other's shoulders at the top of the ladders while they're being shot at by the British from inside, and the bodies were piling up oh down God. below. It's all pretty, uh, pretty heroic and brave stuff, or foolhardy if you prefer.
0: Yeah. Then in August 1798, having lost maybe as many as a hundred thousand men in Haiti and having spent millions of pounds, the British withdrew. The whole episode had been a military and humanitarian disaster. We're fighting on the wrong side for the wrong reasons and it ends in total failure. So is it any wonder that, you know, this is something the British history books prefer to forget about? I wonder why. I wonder why it is.
1: Maybe that's another good place to take a break. So we're back in Haiti. The rebellion has continued for years as the French kept their governor on the island and debated the best way to restore order to the colony. The former slaves grew food and raised animals in small holdings up in the mountains or in the plains. There are so many battles and massacres and sieges and public executions over these years that it would take a whole podcast series to recount them all.
0: Yeah, but basically it just settled into this impossible stalemate where the former slaves were not going back to the plantations, and the former plantation owners still believe they should be in charge and all the black people should do exactly as they were told.
1: Yeah, in fact, one attempt at a peace negotiation did not start well when the leaders from the two sides met. One of the former slave owners went up and struck one of the former slaves, thinking they were bringing him into line.
0: Jesus. Um, when Louverture negotiated terms with the British and Spanish without checking with his supposed masters back in Paris... This was seen as a very provocative act. He was still claiming to be acting in the interests of France, to whom he declared his loyalty, and yet he was behaving like the ruler of an island, which in effect he was, even though Sontana was still in office.
1: Yeah, so Louisville was effectively the ruler of the colony by now. He conquered the Spanish colony in the east, so now the whole island of Hispaniola was his. He actually received advice from Alexander Hamilton in America, who said he should be in the room where it happened and that he should not give up his shot. Mm. And that's for anyone who hasn't seen Hamilton will not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Louverture lost some support among the former slaves by advocating a return to the plantation system, as he believed that the country could not survive without any sort of economic activity.
0: And don't tell me everyone was like, sell out, traitor. We will never go back to the plantations. Down with this government.
1: Yeah, and he's like, we are the government. That's how this works. <laughs> but he insisted he wasn't bringing back slavery, but they could go back to working on their old plantations with their old slave drivers, and they could agree to this new contract where they weren't allowed to leave. And maybe we he even said maybe we could bring some extra workers over from Africa to help in the fields. Oh,
0: my God. So Louverture suggested to Sontana that he leave the colony, and the French governor took the hint and got out of there.
1: Yeah. So in 1801, Louverture issued a constitution for Saint-Domingue that decreed that he would be governor for life and called for black autonomy and a sovereign black state. This is quite a big deal. But by now, power in France has shifted from the National Assembly to a short bloke from Corsica called Napoleon.
0: Ah, now, Napoleon wasn't having any of this, was he? No. So he dispatched a massive expeditionary force of French soldiers and warships led by his brother-in-law, I mean, it's always who you know, isn't it, John? Typical, isn't it? Um, he had instructions to restore French rule and secret instructions to restore slavery. So he'd sent back Louverture's two children who'd been studying in France, which is one way of getting out of handing in your dissertation, I suppose. Yeah. But they brought a letter in which Napoleon promised his good intentions towards the colony and its leader which is why the letter came with thousands of French troops behind it, because it was completely innocuous.
1: <laughs> exactly. Napoleon had sent loads of Polish troops. But when these soldiers got the measure of the situation, they realised they were fighting for the enemies of liberty and they promptly switched sides and fought against the French. And the Poles had a special place in saint ever after.
0: So Napoleon completely reversed all the revolution's progressive ideas about ending slavery and equality between all men. He brought in racist laws, making it illegal for black soldiers to hold a rank above captain. And so the rebels could be clear about what they were fighting for.
1: Yeah. The French actually brought attack dogs to terrorise the enemy. Except once they're on the battlefield, the dogs weren't clear who was the enemy and who wasn't. They just start savaging the French soldiers.
0: (laughs) So in the end, most of the dogs were just eaten by the French soldiers. Well, Angela, that's the French for you.
1: Sil bouge, mange
0: <laughs> But however many troops the French threw at the colony, they couldn't defeat the guerrilla tactics of the rebels.
1: Yeah, and eventually a summit was called between the French leaders and Louverture. But when he turned up, Louverture's private guards were overpowered and the island's mercurial ruler was taken prisoner. He was put on a ship to France and imprisoned in a freezing mountaintop jail in the French Alps, where he sadly died of pneumonia the following year. Wow. Not even a marked grave for one of the most remarkable revolutionaries of the modern age even if he did start sounding a bit dodgy once he got to power.
0: Well, that's just part the course, isn't it, really, John? With revolutionaries, they're fine until they actually get the power.
1: <laughs> yeah. If Citizen Smith had become ruler of Britain, the whole power to the people thing would probably have shifted to all power to me on behalf of the people.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's one for people of a certain age, that reference.
0: <laughs> so now Jean-Jacques Dessalines became the leader of the revolution. He was less of a wily tactician than his old boss. And his policy was basically just kill everyone. Pretty effective.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the French soon discovered that the rebels were not going to surrender just because they'd lost their inspirational leader. Dessalines' forces decisively defeated the French at the Battle of Vertier on the 18th of November, 1803. And Saint-Domingue was declared independent on the 29th of November. And then the Republic of Haiti was declared on January the 1st,
0: 1804. Yeah. And the name Haiti is derived from the indigenous... Taino arawak name for the entire island of Hispaniola, uh, which they called Aiti, which meant land of mountains.
1: Yeah, the former slaves saw an affinity with the Native Americans who'd been persecuted by the Europeans, and they're not sure if there are any Arawak or Tano Indians left by this point.
0: Mm. So Napoleon decided he couldn't afford to keep losing that many troops, especially as the short-lived peace with Britain was over, and he's locked back into a massive continental war back home, which, spoiler alert not gonna end well. Yes, so Dessaline
1: now cemented his role with a brutal massacre of all the remaining whites in Haiti, uh, the Haitian massacres of 1804 saw between three and 4,000 white people murdered. That was the level of mistrust of the whites and their intention to restore slavery. And of course, they had to factor in the threat from outside, you know, the danger of foreign powers reoccupying the island, because they would want to end this example of a former slave colony governing
0: itself. Yeah, and the Polish occupants were excused as they were seen as allies and comrades and were honoured as the blacks of Europe and granted full citizenship. So the massacres weren't spontaneous acts of brutality, but happened on the strict orders of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the first ruler of an independent Haiti. He sent out strict orders that these massacres should happen, but he found that there was little appetite for more violence until he travelled to each town to make sure that his orders were carried out.
1: Yeah, one Haitian, Jean Zombie, carried out a particularly brutal public execution, and there's a theory that the Haitian voodoo word, zombie, comes from this episode. Or Jean might have been called zombie after the voodoo concept of the living dead. Anyway, that's where we get zombies from, and they've been a right nuisance ever since. I had to get the counts of them when I had zombies in my basement. Terrible.
0: Some of the white people escaped the massacre and managed to flee to the United States where Haiti became a terrifying warning about what might happen if they abolished slavery in the southern states. So it sort of helped harden attitudes about abolition for generations.
1: Yeah, the United States did not recognise the independence of Haiti until 1862. Wow. It was always blocked by the southern states. But without defeating Haiti, France would probably not have sold its continental territories to the USA. So no Louisiana purchase, no expansion of the United States, a completely different history for North America and the world.
0: Yeah. An independent Haiti struggled in the international community uh, for the following decades. The European powers refused to trade with it or accord it the status of a new regional power.
1: Yeah, and Haiti was forced to pay an indemnity to France in order to restore diplomatic relations. And when they couldn't pay, they had to borrow money from France to pay it and got trapped in a cycle of debt that continued until the 20th century.
0: So it's basically a fine for having a revolution. Yeah. And slavery wasn't fully abolished in the French colonies until 1848. And getting rid of slavery in the United States, well, John, that was a right old kerfuffle. Tell me about it. So that is the
1: Haiti Revolution. Uh, Thank you to Laurent Dubois for your book, Avengers of the New World. I can't remember that, Angela. The last time I read an episode from history, so packed with massacres, cruelty, tortures, and then more massacres.
0: It just became a bit of white noise of violence, didn't it?
1: Sorry about that, listeners. But if you manage to avoid all that, there's always the agonising death from yellow fever.
0: Goodness me. Our sincere apologies to the Haiti Tourism Board. I don't think we've done much for them. (laughs) doesn't make it sound like your number one holiday destination, does it?
1: No. I mean, no. Even today, there's massive food insecurity in Haiti. Parliament isn't functioning properly. The justice system has basically collapsed. And armed gangs control a lot of strategic points in the country. Ports, distribution etc., and all that. Adult literacy is around 50%. And the violence continues. President Moyes was assassinated in 2021. And that year, of course, saw a massive earthquake and there were huge challenges distributing aid in what many international observers say is a failed state. So that's it for this week.
0: Yes, thank you for listening. Do go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. Um, Join the Patreon. Should we do a shout out for our Patreons?
1: Yes, fantastic Patreon supporters. We love them.
0: So we'll say hello to Luke Chanel. To Joel Burton. To, ah, now this is someone I know, John, to Gavin Saxby, who listeners might be interested to know. Uh, You know the nuclear bunker in Dundee, where I have my hen do and that I talk about quite a lot. I'm a patron of their bunker. Gavin Saxby is the manager of the restoration project there. So um, look that up, uh, the 28 group observed in Dundee. Fantastic. Thank you to Lizzie Waterhouse. And finally to Mel Jewel. And that's it for today. We will see you next time. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, guys. God, John, I can't believe you're against Black History Month. I'm not against Black History Month. I say it should be more diverse. How's he been against Black History Month? I never said that. Oh, why is there no International Wednesday? That's what John wants to know.
1: We are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne Marie Lush, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, We Are History is a Podmaster's production.